I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, and it's good to have you listening. On a recent flight, I sat next to a young woman who was about to embark on a career as a flight attendant for Southwest. She was returning from a training session that day, and she enthused about the travel and the benefits of working for an airline. And I privately wondered why anyone would brave the rage, the rudeness, and the boorishness that flight attendants encounter in the not-so-friendly skies today. It's not like it was when Ann Hood was a fly girl, a flight attendant for TWA. Oh, it wasn't perfect, but as Hood writes in her new book, I worked in one of the most demanding, sexist, exciting, glorious jobs a person can have— I was a flight attendant. Anne Hood is a novelist and a writer. Her new memoir is titled Fly Girl, and she's with us today from Providence, Rhode Island. Anne, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Carrie. I love that story. (laughs) (laughs) When I met that young woman, you know, I just finished your book, and I wondered what you would have thought if you'd been sitting next to her and you were listening to her hopes and dreams. What do you think you would have said to her? You know, I would have been excited for her and told her so. I I know that the last two years have been brutal for flight attendants with mask mandates and so many flight disruptions and passengers uh, who didn't want to follow the rules. Flight attendants have really gone through a lot. But I believe we're getting to the other side of that. And I think that any young woman who takes this job is about to embark on one of the most exciting parts of her life because being a flight attendant actually empowers you. It teaches you confidence, and it teaches you independence, and it teaches you how to be able to walk into any room or any city and feel at home in the world. And I can't think of a better thing for a young woman to do, honestly. When you board a flight now that you are well beyond your flight attendant years and you watch the flight attendants, men and women, going about their work, and then you watch the way the passengers react, treat them, behave, what do you think? Oh, I feel sad for the passengers who have no leg room and, you know, um, are their flights delayed. They're not going to make a connection. So I feel bad for the passengers and I feel bad for the flight attendants who are working at less pay and doing more hours and having to deal with the unhappy passengers. But that said, I do feel like most flights are kind of routine still. And I think passengers are happy to be going from point A to B to get to whatever they're doing, a wedding, a family reunion, a job interview, a job, visiting their mom. And I think if the flight attendant's a good flight attendant, um, he or she's happy to be doing it. And I will admit, Carrie, that I watch with great scrutiny because I always think, could I have done that better? <laughs> Are they doing that right? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's so the guilty. way I watch the news, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, why'd they say that? <laughs> you just said something about pay, which mm. which I think is interesting. I mean, you weren't – we're going to talk about your life in these early days as a flight attendant, but you weren't making that much money, and yet you've just noted that the pay overall has decreased for flight attendants. What happened? Well, you know, I think I was making a nice salary. <laughs> did um, you? Okay. <laughs> I did. No, in those days, um, unions had successfully fought for pretty good pay, including money for layovers, mm-hmm. you know, extra money when things went wrong, uh, more money for flying international. Like it added up. You know, you got this third check a month that was like a little 
Christmas gift that mm-hmm. came um, with all the extras. So, you know, I owned a, a, co- a co-op in Greenwich Village. I, I was living an okay life. Uh, the unions were busted. Uh, corporate raiders took over Airlines Continental in my own beloved TWA. And work uh, work concessions were were the norm. And flight attendants gave up more than the male-dominated pilot and machinist unit, unions. And so my friend, for example, who flew for 35 years, um, ended up making less money than when he had started with TWA. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, yeah. I covered the union negotiations with Northwest Airlines in this mm-hmm. community. And what the airlines were asking of the employees was pretty breathtaking. I mean – yeah. You really, I guess, in those moments when the employers seem to have a lot of the power, you really had to ask yourself how badly you wanted to do this kind of work. A lot of people hung on, right? But a lot of people left. Yes. I mean, TWA actually had one of the largest labor strikes in aviation history in 1986. And I was a part of that. And it was to fight for giving back money, but just the same amount that the pilots and machinists had, which was 15 percent. And Carl Icahn, who was the kind of the corporate raider who had taken over TWA, his philosophy was, and I'm using a, a pretty direct quote, that girls don't need to make that much money. I mean, that's what I wondered if this is not just about the power of the unions, but the perceived status of the the women and men who do that work on on the planes, and whether you think you know, that that status is still kind of in in effect. I totally think it is. I think it's better than when I started. But I, I can assure you that the sexism still is rampant. And I can assure you that many passengers and, and airline and other airline employees still look at flight attendants as glorified waitresses. And, you know, as someone said to me the other day, and it kind of took my breath away, well, that 21-year-old glorified waitress is the one who's going to evacuate your plane if it goes down. So let's start, like, thinking about why they're really on the plane and the training they have, um, you know, what they do every day. In the book, you ask a rather pointed question about your own aspirations to be to, to be a flight attendant. You say, why did I, a smart 21-year-old woman in 1978, choose to become a flight attendant rather than a banker or pharmaceutical salesperson or teacher or social worker as my college friends had? I thought about that, too, because, you know, my parents – back in the day, paid my way through college. I think mm-hmm. if on the other side of college I had said to them, and now I want to be a flight attendant, they would have been like, <laughs> we did, we put you through college, you, you majored in English lit for that. Uh, mm. So answer your own question, and then let's talk a little bit more about kind of how the how the world saw that. Well, you know, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was seven or eight years old. I read Little Women, and I just knew that's what I wanted, to, to write stories. <laughs> it's the book that has cursed many, many female writers, I know. <laughs> um, but I just decided I want to do this. And from that young age, I always wrote, you know, little plays, bad poetry, short stories. I grew up in a small mill town in Rhode Island, and no one could help me with how to become a writer. Like, I just couldn't get the guidance. And so on my own probably based on movies I saw and books I read, I thought that the way to get experiences and have adventures was to see the world. 
And the way to see the world for a young woman in 1978 was to be a flight attendant. Um, I just wanted to have experiences, something to write about. You know, I went to college 30 minutes from where I grew up. Uh, I didn't have a big life. I dreamed of one. And I had this master plan that I would accumulate experiences and take notes and somehow use them in my first novel. It, it's sort of a, a you know, cockamamie way <laughs> to look at becoming a writer, but it's all I had. And, you know, there are a lot of writers out there who were flight attendants. Mary Higgins Clark was a flight attendant. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. And Barbara Raskin, who wrote a big bestseller back in the 80s called Hot Flashes, mm. was a flight attendant. So we're out there. <laughs> I wasn't the only one. I mean, it, it was the only you were so, so invested in the plan that it was the only job you applied for out of college. Right. This this was your path. That was it. I only applied to airlines. Exactly. I, you know, I thought about other possible jobs. I can't even remember what those might have been. But I, I knew that I also wasn't cut out for the nine to five life. So being a flight attendant and being a writer really suited my, my kind of my personality that I didn't want to work in an office. I didn't want to do the same thing every day. Um, I didn't want to be on that fast track, even though, as my father kept telling me, this was a great time for women to enter the business yeah, world. Yeah. It just wasn't what I wanted. I just wanted excitement and unpredictability. And I wanted everything. <laughs> I, I have to say, your dad really, I think, stands out as a as a hero here, because while he is reminding you, like you've just said, it's a great time for young women to be going into business. When you are clearly determined to pursue being a flight attendant, he kind of dives in and helps helps you get these interviews, right? Describe what he, he did. Oh, he was amazing. I mean, I did have an amazing dad in every way. But I, I, when I told him this, I mean, my mother and father were both kind of taken aback. Now, my father had wanderlust his whole life. He ran away from home and joined the Navy when he was 17 because he wanted to see the world. You know, and I grew up with his stories of what he ate in China and skiing in Greece and all sorts of things that really kind of fueled my own desire. And when he realized that I was serious he was the kind of person, as was my mom, who whatever I wanted to do, they wanted me to be able to do it and just be the best you can be at it because that's how you find happiness, you know? And so he said, let's get in the car. I'm going to take you to Logan Airport. We're going to get those applications. And of course, in those days, you could park right in front. And I went in and <laughs> somebody behind the desk just handed me an application. I probably left with, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20. There were a lot of airlines back then. And we got home and he said, I'm going to teach you how to fill out a job application. I'd never done it, you know. And uh, some of them were pretty easy, you know, like your age, your weight, your height, and always the question, can you swim, <laughs> um, which uh -huh. was perplexing, but I learned why in training. Um, but, you know, some were much more complicated. Describe yourself and your jobs in the past. And he really helped me do that. He was in a management position, so he knew what to look for on an application form. And then he took me to the post office to mail them all off and, you know, just was my cheerleader un until I got that job for TWA. And I, I will admit a little bit of selfishness. I know no one is completely heroic. He loved the idea of those free passes that family gets. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who wouldn't? So um, so you had some job interviews. And I'm curious about whether for all of these applications you were filling out, whether the airlines were just... You'd walk in, they'd assess the way you looked, you could put string three words together, you were in. Or whether 
there were tougher standards to get in the door. What, how, what was it like? I think the initial interview, which I probably had eight or ten, were all pretty much to look at you and to hear you talk. Okay. Um, and some airlines, that was enough. <laughs> you know, some smaller regional airlines who who did have other aspirations, but they were looking for different things. As you got up into the bigger airlines, and especially TWA and Pan Am, which were the only two that flew internationally at the time, uh, and I would put in there United and um, Eastern Airlines, note that these are all defunct. <laughs> I, mean, I know. You know oh right? Everyone I said, but they were the toughest to get hired by. And for Pan Am, you needed to pass a language test. You had to have another language. TWA's final interview was three days at their training academy where you were scrutinized from the moment you arrived. I would actually say from the time you boarded the plane to Kansas City until the moment you left. Hmm. Uh, it was the most stressful thing I think I've ever undergone, even more stressful than waiting for your editor's notes on your new novel. <laughs> Well, so I wondered when I read what you'd been through before you got hired at TWA, how the metric, the standards have changed for getting hired today. Now, the airlines, it can't all be about weight and looks. We'll talk a no. little bit about that. But do you think that today the Delta is looking for pretty much the same thing that TWA was looking for when you got hired? You know, I don't know, but I'm, I'm guessing yes. That friend I told you about who went on to fly for 35 years, after he retired, he missed flying so much that he applied to other airlines. He tried to get a job <laughs> oh back. And he didn't get hired by any. Huh. He did, and, and he went to the final interview for one, didn't get any interviews for a couple others, and did one or two interviews for a few, and he didn't get hired. And he had been a flight attendant for a long time, and you know he fits the, the model of a male flight attendant. And so I have to say that I think there are still high standards. And, and what would you say are the, the qualities that today you really have to possess to do this job as effectively as you can? I think number one is you have to be someone who can think on your feet. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how they look for that in interviews, but I am sure some of the things that I was asked to do during my interviews and that flight attendant you know, wannabes are now, it has to be they are assessing how fast you can think on your feet. Because when you're on an airplane, so many things go wrong. And you're also navigating so many different personalities that you have to be able to do multitask and take care of a lot of problems all at once. Um, you know, the height requirement, I have to defend a little because a lot of it is about reaching emergency equipment. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not low. It's in those overhead bins and often like tucked away in them. So you have to be able to reach them quickly. You know, I've had, I had to use just about all of the, the equipment at one point or another. Um, and you know, I, I think they do want people who they look like they can represent the airline and every airline that means something different too. Uh, you know, what Delta looks at to rep, to be a flight attendant that screams Delta is very different than mm. what Southwest does or, yeah, they have different looks. You know, some airlines want all American looking people. Some want sophisticated looking people. Some want youth. I mean, it really depends on what their, what their image is, what they see their image as being. That is really interesting because I, I fly usually Delta, but a number of mm -hmm. different airlines and I've never really thought that there is a specific look that, let's say, Southwest Airlines 
is going. I mean, mm-hmm. the uniforms are obviously different, but I didn't know right. that the the people wearing the uniform are going to look some ways markedly different from the people that show up at Delta. Yeah, they absolutely are. Oh. You know, some people want – I'll give you an example. And, of course, it's from years ago when I was um, interviewing, but it, it still exists today. I went into – it was a pretty major airline. And um, the interviewer had on so much makeup and her hair was really done, <laughs> you know, and the nail polish. And I went in with my Dorothy Hamill wedge. <laughs> <laughs> we all had them. Yeah. Right? And my lip gloss and a little a little bit of mascara. And I walked in and she knew, Mm-mm, not for us. They wanted that Southern look, if I may say. Yeah, I don't the mean, big I'm hair. I'm not judging and, it. Yeah. Yeah, a, a, a more polished to them, I think, more polished, more pulled together look than a natural kind of, you know, fresh faced 21 year old look. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show. We call it Big Books and Bold Ideas. And my guest is Anne Hood. She's out with a memoir called Fly Girl. She writes about being a flight attendant, aspiring, dreaming of being a flight attendant from the time that she was a young girl and doing it after college and all the adventures and let's say the uh, the challenges that she confronted as a flight attendant for TWA. She writes in the book, I worked in one of the most demanding, sexist, exciting, glorious jobs a person can have. I was a flight attendant. Okay, I want to talk about the sexism because you've alluded to that and (laughs) and there it is in the introduction. You write that now you can see the blatant sexism. And we'll Mm -hmm. talk about that. What I want to know is whether you were just too young to take the objectification seriously. You didn't care that much. You weren't I guess you weren't woke in the parlance of the day, whatever whatever that was yeah, right. back in your era. What was it that, that you didn't care that much about it? You know, it's interesting. The thing that I did care about and that I would sort of um, respond to was if a passenger said outright or treated me like I wasn't intelligent. So the fact that I was in this job and they thought sex kitten or whatever their thought was – I thought, you know, shame on you. And, you know, the job did carry that unfortunate aura. But to assume that I was not smart or to assume I was a, you know, a dumb blonde, that would really bother me. And I would always set those passengers straight. You know, I got hired in 1978. I went to college with women who still said they were in college to get their MRS. (laughs) I had Mm. one foot in another era. Mm -hmm. And that's no excuse I thought of myself as kind of a feminist, which is surprising when I look back. You know, to me, that meant going out on my own, having my own ideas, you know, not having a, a guy tell me what to do. To me, that was that was being pretty feminist in 1978. Well, you know, when I, I listen to your experience and I think two things were true simultaneously, right? You were standing up for yourself and you were doing, I think, living a life that would look like a feminist life. And yet you were in this industry that you were also kind of saying, well, uh, this is the way it is. And so I'm going to mm-hmm. put up with that. Yeah. Two things. Yeah. Same time. True. Absolutely. It was that it was that era. Um, as I said, one foot in the olden days and one foot trying to get into the future and change things. You know, I, I have a friend who was hired by TWA in 1946. Wow. And her one interview consisted of her 
going to some, you know, high rise in Chicago and wearing a skirt, she was told, and walking back and forth across the room while three men watched her do it. Cringe. And I, yeah, and I said to her, how did you feel? And she said, look, I knew they were looking at my legs, but I also knew that I wanted this job and I wanted to get out of South Dakota and I wanted to have adventures and live a big life. And so look at my legs because I'm the one winning here. (laughs) I don't think it changed that much in the next 40 years. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, they they required the airlines, and most of them, I assume, required that you weigh in at the weight you were the day you were hired. I have to say, I know very few women who weigh the exact <laughs> same weight they did when they were in their early 20s. It's such a ridiculous requirement. Not only is it ridiculous, and I'll, I will explain it a little bit, but we didn't – fight attendants fought that weight requirement for decades and didn't get it removed until the 90s. That's Jeez. what's the most alarming. Yeah. yeah. Wow. They had won age discrimination cases. They had won the right for men to be flight attendants. That was in the late 70s. They had won the right to get married and keep their job, have children and keep their job. But they did not win that weight requirement until the 90s. And so when in all the applications, you got like a weight chart. And they were all slightly different. So TWA, I remember clearly, I'm 5'8". Um, I could be hired at 140 pounds. Mm-hmm. I was hired at 120 pounds. Jeez. I didn't have 20 pounds to gain. <laughs> <laughs> My hiring weight was 120, and that was what I had to maintain. Now, I have to say that that was especially enforced during the probationary period, which was the six months after training, Mm -hmm. where you'd get off your flight and be called to a weigh-in. And they'd have a clipboard and write it down. And if you were over your hiring weight, you got a warning. Mm -hmm. And then so if you had to lose those two or three pounds, I mean, we did kind of extreme things. It, because we were already so thin, it wasn't easy to get rid of a couple pounds. You know, when you have no right. no body fat, you know. Right. Um, once that probationary period ended, you still were, uh, you could still have a weigh in, but it wasn't as intense. You weren't as intensely watched for it. That doesn't make it right, but that's just the system. And my darling roommate was fired for being five pounds over her hiring weight. Oh, that is with, inf- wow. That is which was under the weight on that chart. You know, it was under the weight on that chart we received, but over her hiring weight. Wow. Were the weight requirements really about controlling the appearance of the flight attendants? Or or did it start because weight was a pretty important metric for the planes, you know, for knowing how much weight they could actually carry? What a what a great question. Yes, that's how it started. Everything was weighed and balanced and people were too. I mean, passengers used to get weighed. So, I mean, you know, those early flights um, and the early flight attendants were nurses and that was the most important qualification. When World War II came, nurses were needed for the war effort and that's when everything changed. Hmm. Now they're just hiring women, you know, single Hmm. young women uh, who weren't working in the war effort yet. And that's when some savvy advertising executives realized this is the best marketing tool we have. <laughs> and so the 50s saw, you know, right after World War II, 
saw the the beginning of what we think of the coffee tea or me era, if you will. I want to talk about uh, some of these the ways that the airlines marketed the women who oh, flew for them. Grown. So, but yes, we have to do it because we have a national airlines ad. So for our for our listeners, this is a national airlines commercial that aired in 1972. This was six or seven years before Anne started. But this is how National Airlines marketed the company. Fly me to Miami, Tampa, Orlando, all over Florida. Fly me. I'm National Fly Me. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Yuck. Yuck. <laughs> Yuck. What do you think when you hear that, Anne? Oh, I was cringing. I really <laughs> was. I was cringing. I, there are so many equally as bad ones. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the height. I would say the mid-60s until for probably a decade, that was the height of this uh, sexed-up advertising. Continental Airlines, our flight attendants shake their tails for you. Yeah, right. I I mean, everybody. Everybody had a version of it. You can't even point fingers at one because it was pretty unilateral. And the idea was that this was the way to attract mostly men because it was mostly men flying or break down the marketing as you understood what it was. It was absolutely. The flights were for businessmen. That's who we attracted. That's who needed to get places. Um, It would be so rare, for example, in first class for me to see a woman who wasn't a celebrity. Hmm. Like, I think I can count on one hand the amount of times a a woman executive was in first class. Um, There's a wonderful, like, wonderful, terrible, if I may, you know, uh, saying about uh, businessmen used to pay a lot of money to fly so that they could put their briefcase on the seat because it was only businessmen. They're buying a seat for their briefcases. Uh, It was a mostly male flight. I mean, it was so expensive to fly when I started. Deregulation changed that. But it used to be that the government set the fares and the routes. And so if it was $1,200 to fly from New York to L.A., you didn't see like a bunch of friends going for a bridal party or, you know, a family of five doing that. Yeah. One more question about this, but I do want to talk about deregulation. Mm-hmm. We're, I mean, the imp- the implication in that national airlines commercial and some of the other ones you're talking about is, you know, this isn't just uh, look no touch. You never know what kind of an encounter you might have with one of these mm-hmm. glamour. You know, I mean, that's that that's what I read into it. That's implied for sure. You know, I, I mean, some airlines did things like don't tell your wife. Uh, yeah, it was terrible, <laughs> terrible. Um, I cringe. I saw that National Airlines had a TV ad a few years after what you played, and it was just a close-up of a beautiful woman, and it just said, I'm Cheryl, fly me. (laughs) It didn't even have all the glitz and glamour of the music. I mean, it was even more direct. Poor Cheryl. Poor Cheryl. What do you think Cheryl went on to do? (laughs) I don't know. I hope it wasn't what I'm thinking. I don't know. (laughs) Right. So you mentioned deregulation. 
Mm-hmm. Deregulation made flying much more accessible, right, to middle class Americans. Right. Mm-hmm. In the end, having seen this from the perch that you did and studied it the way you have, was deregulation good for the industry or not? You know, in many ways, it was not. It did allow the average person to fly. I mean, the percentage of people who flew after deregulation and before is vast, and the difference is vast. Um, Once airlines could compete, you could get those, I don't know if you remember, there were like $39 fares on an airline called People Express. I do remember that. Uh, And I remember my friend flew People Express to meet me on a layover in London, and her round-trip ticket was $99 to London from New York. Uh, But that was all because of deregulation. So it did open up so much for the the average person. But it's also what's responsible for all the seats being jammed in now, Mm -hmm. um, the the lack of service, the the disappearance of so many wonderful airlines who just couldn't compete with those low-cost airlines that came in. And many of those low-cost ones are gone too. But of the major airlines, only Delta and American remained from when I flew. Um, so it, it hurt many, many, many people. Uh, so I don't know the answer to is it better or worse because um, there's a lot in each column. What I think is interesting about, let, let's say Delta, because that's our our home airline, you know, what's interesting is it seems like this goes in cycles. Like there's a while where it's all about price, and that's all that the passengers really care about. And then you'll see Delta kind of bring back some of the perks mm. that if you're willing to spend an additional $25, you know, you can sit in comfortable. I mean, it just seems like they're also trying to ride the whims of what passengers want right now. How do, how do you see it? Absolutely. I mean, there are airlines, and I don't know if Delta is among them, but there are airlines. You get such a cheap fare. Oh, you want a carry-on bag, $25. Oh, you want a check a bag, another $25. There are airlines that charge for water, like bottles of water. Um, so they want to make money. They want to give the passengers what they want, but they don't want to do it in a way that – I mean, if, if there was an airline carry that gave you oh, – all of these things without having to pay so much, I would opt for them every time. I mean, I'm willing to pay a little more to have a seat that's comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, and a bottle of water and uh, my bag in the overhead. Mm, <laughs> you yeah, know? you're not asking that much. I mean, do you th- uh-uh. do you think the crowding more and more now? I'm seeing, you know, the tiering, like kind of what you just described. Like if if you're willing to pony up a little more, then you get to sit here, not at the front, but you get to. Yeah. Do you think that's pretty much the future or do you see more changes coming on that? I, I think that's here to stay. And I, mm. and I think even just, you know, now that we've started to travel again, I've seen even more tears. I thought there couldn't be more. Yeah, that's right. But, yeah. but my husband and I flew to Crete in April and uh, I, I got confused about what kind of ticket I'd bought because there was comfort and priority and premium and basic and main. I, I It was so confusing and what you got at each tier. And then as you pay more and more, there's even more tiers. And then there's platinum and silver and ruby and, you know, for, for even first class has tiers. <laughs> and, you know, a friend of mine, this was long after I had stopped flying, but he was actually told in Boston as um, they were boarding the the commissary that he was told, look at the manifest, and if people have used miles to upgrade to first class, don't offer them oh, the good wine. Oh, my gosh. I always suspected this. Yeah. Always and he suspected said, He said, I can't do that. 
They're in first class. I was trained to give first class service. Now, I don't know how that landed, if that actually went through, but they tried to put it through at one point. Jeez. Yeah. You saw I, – I was pretty shocked at the – and this was just kind of a brief anecdote in the book. But mm-hmm. you saw at least one pilot drinking and oh. he required – he wanted you to serve him booze in the cockpit. Will you describe what happened? That was one of the moments I've thought about and really kind of – one of the places I think I really fell down. Like I, did, I didn't do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um what part of the job of a certain flight attendant position is that you serve the cockpit beverages throughout the flight and also a meal at some point. And before takeoff, you always go in and ask or right after takeoff, both actually. And I went in and said, what can I get you to drink? And, you know, the flight engineer said, whatever the, the first officer said, whatever the captain looked, you know, was looking at the, the dashboard or whatever it's called, the cockpit controls. And he says two Jack Daniels on the rocks. And like a part of me, thought, oh, well, that's a joke. And I said, okay, all right, sure. What do you want? And he turned around and he looked directly at me and he said, two Jack Daniels on the rocks. So I left the cockpit. I got the beverages for the first officer and the flight engineer. I went back in. I said, you know, last last call or something, last chance, what would you like? And he said, you know what I want. And I just walked out and went setting about for the service and out he came opened the beverage drawer and took out two Jack Daniels and a glass of ice and went back in the cockpit. And the thing I regret, and as I said, I I did a lot, you know, I I fought for our rights. I, you know, was in a labor strike. I took care of so many things. I, I saved lives. I did so much. Why didn't I say something to the purser who was the flight attendant in charge on that flight? Mm-hmm. What was I thinking or not thinking? So that was the one place that I really fell down short. Well, um, what do you think made you hesitate and ultimately well, decide not to talk about it? You know, I, I, we were always in fear of our jobs. Any bad letters from passengers, you could be fired. Um, you know, you didn't have your lipstick on. If a certain kind of supervisor saw you and thought you didn't look TWA ready, you could be put on, you know, probation and lose your job ultimately. So there were so many rules about how you acted, how you looked, what you did. And one rule was you never questioned the, the, the pilot, the mm-hmm. captain. Um, you could make a suggestion, but whatever he decided, you did. And I think I had in my too young, wrong brain that if I turned him in, I could somehow get in trouble. Would everybody – would the cockpit defend him? They didn't They didn't say, oh, don't give Joe a Jack Daniels. They didn't say, Joe, you can't do that. They looked the other way too. What do you think the power dynamic is today between pilots and the rest of the crew? Because from where I sit on planes pretty often, mm-hmm. the pilots still ha- still seem to carry a lot of authority. I think they do. And, and of course – in in most ways they should because they're flying that plane and uh, they're getting us there safely and they are doing troubleshooting that a lot of times we don't even know they've had to do, right? Um, and it's just as well we don't know. Uh, and, you know, and I, I made this comparison the other night and, and someone in the audience corrected me a little. But, you know, one of my best friends is a nurse and she has described situations with doctors where the relationship is such that although you can make suggestions and make observations. Ultimately, the doctor makes the calls. That's how I kind of feel the relationship is mm. with with the flight crew and the, and the flight attendants. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I guess I don't see that changing and I don't know. Um, you know, the flight attendants are making a lot of the cabin decisions uh, that they don't have to ask the flight, the pilot about. So mm-hmm. it's really emergency kind of things, uh, judgment calls. Uh, let me reintroduce you. If you're tuned in this morning to Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, you're listening to my conversation with Anne Hood. She's out with a she's a novelist and she's out with a new memoir called Fly Girl. It's about her time as a flight attendant for TWA. I, I want to ask you about one of the judgment calls where you had to exercise your own judgment in the moment. I mean, I think earlier you said what some of the airlines were were, were looking for was uh, young people who could think on their feet. Mm-hmm. Describe a situation where you were really in the moment, you had to make a judgment call, you look back and think, hey, my training kicked in and my good my good common sense kicked in. Well, there are so many. I, I, I'm wondering if you're thinking about the, the passenger who had a heart attack. Yeah, that, that would I think that would qualify as one yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this this man who got on and, and you know, it was funny because um, we're, it was just a short flight from Pittsburgh to St. Louis. He looked like my dad. And so I just was, you know, that made me talk to him. We're, you were always supposed to be friendly to passengers as they boarded. But I, I said, hey, where are you going? And he said, I'm going on a business trip to St. Louis. I noticed he was kind of red-faced and out of breath, but not in a scary way. Like, it looked like he was just a guy, you know, a middle-aged guy who had had to run to get his flight. But he had this hat, like this fedora, I'll never forget, with, with a little feather in it. And it wasn't the era when men always wore hats. So it just struck me. And I remember I put it in the overhead bin for him. And on takeoff, he had a heart attack. His The guy sitting in his row, it was somebody at the window. He was in the aisle. No one in the middle started yelling, help, something's happening. And I jumped out of the jump seat. And honestly, it was like, it was like just, you said your training kicks in. I didn't even think. Mm-hmm. I just did everything that I'd been taught to do. Wow. The thing, I asked him the questions you had to ask. I got him out of his seat. I got another flight attendant to help me. Um, she got the oxygen tank. We gave him oxygen. Uh, we were checking for, you know, his heart. And then I know I saw that the, the bag on the oxygen tank wasn't inflating, that he had stopped breathing. And then we went into CPR yelling for, is it, is there a doctor on the plane? There was not, um, yelling for help for another flight attendant, the pilot coming back. We just did everything exactly right. And sadly, he died. You know, I've wondered about that. What would happen if usually there is not a doctor on the plane? Isn't that that Mm -hmm. right? I mean, what are the odds? I mean, I've had to call for a doctor maybe a dozen times, and I think only three times was there someone who who was a medical person. And so if they're not there, it's up to the flight attendants to figure this out, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of scary, isn't it? You know, you are trained so well. Uh, honestly, as I said, I didn't even have to think about what to do. I didn't have to get my manual and review or anything. You just, I, I just went into action. You know, on we were sent off on our first flights right out of Kansas City from the Kansas City airport. And someone in my class, my training class, first flight gave someone the Heimlich maneuver and saved his life. It's <laughs> like, really remarkable. Wow. Yeah, you're trained and you learn it. And you do it because they they hired the right per, the right people, you know. Right. 
I'm sure you've been asked about this, Anne, but I wondered if you've seen the HBO Max show Flight Attendant. I, I do get asked. And, and the the writer of the book is a, a lovely man and a dear friend of mine. In oh. fact, he gave me a wonderful blurb for Fly Girl. So when you're writing about being a flight attendant, the last thing you do is read a book or watch a TV show <laughs> called The Flight Attendant because you don't want to be influenced in any possible way right? Um, or think about, should I do it that way or do I need to be totally different? So I, I, I'm absolutely clueless about it. Okay. I'm gonna, we're going to play a little bit of the trailer. Um, okay. You'll get the flavor of what this is all about. Let's listen. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for flying with us. Hi. Hi. We had dinner in Bangkok. We went back to his hotel. There's no escape. Okay, I I think you're getting the sense that (laughs) there are just endless numbers of handsome men in first class, and it's glamorous destinations, and she's drinking constantly. So that's exactly (laughs) how it is, right, Anne? (laughs) (laughs) No. What uh, what what did the air? What kind of a policy did the airlines have? Because I know you dated people that you met on flights. What, I did. Were, how open could you be about that? Oh yeah, the, there was no there no problem with dating people that you met on flights. Um, there were drinking issues. You weren't supposed to drink for I for I can't remember how many hours before you boarded. You couldn't have alcohol in your system. You know, um, so if you were seen at a bar, you know, hours before your flight. That would get you fired for sure. Huh. But, but I mean, think about any place you work. You do date people you meet through work. I just happen to work in the sky, yeah. you know, in the silver tube. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, you know, most of my dates with passengers were disastrous, I have to say. I, you know, you see them in this special situation, and they see you in a particular way. And those two things don't often <laughs> work out. Why? Why don't they? Um, probably like I remember one lovely man who asked me out and, um, I only saw him sitting down and, you know, <laughs> he came to pick me up and I was like at least a foot taller than him. <laughs> I, I mean, I was very tall and that's shallow, but I mean, he just wasn't the guy I thought was going to be picking me up. Just like the guy who, he was a big shampoo executive who took me out thinking flight attendant, this is, I'm going to get lucky tonight. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't what I was about. So Everybody had different expectations. But as you know from the book, I did meet my long-term boyfriend. Yes. We went out for over five years. He was in 47F. I still remember the seat he was in. <laughs> and did you ever have to solve a murder? Because that's what happens on flight attendants. So I assume every, that's how it is for everybody. Every day. No. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to know what you think of the show once you're past all the publicity for right. for the memoir. Uh, so you have seen a lot of the world. You mentioned that you and your husband uh, just, I think you said, went to Crete, right? Yes. A, short, a while ago. So having visited Touchdown and all these wonderful cities, and where are some of the places that you have gone back to that you love that, you know, you kind of developed a real appreciation for when you're flying around the world? Well, you know, domestically, I have to say that San Francisco remains one of my favorite places. It was a flight that I I had, a route I had when I was a new flight attendant. Everything was exciting. It's such a beautiful city. I just, the love remains. Of course, places like Paris and London, where I spent a lot of time. 
But I really am someone who loved as a flight attendant and loves still places like Cairo mm. or Athens, like those really exotic places. I can remember being on the crew bus from the airport to the hotel in Cairo and seeing signs with a different alphabet. And it like blew my mind. <laughs> I had never been in a, a place like that. Of course, now I have many times. But I, after I stopped flying, I, I went on a long trip to Egypt to see more of it because mm-hmm. it was really so special. And I can remember eating lunch and like the looking at the pyramids and I I had to keep pinching myself. I felt like I had walked onto the page of my golden book encyclopedia, you know, like (laughs) there they are. (laughs) It's funny because when you see, when you stand to see the pyramids, one thing I think that's weird about them is they're so close to the city. They're Mm -hmm. not, you know, out here, out there in the middle of the desert. And the other thing is you've, you do feel like you are walking onto a film set. That's how conditioned we are. Right. Absolutely. I was shocked by how close they were to the city. <laughs> when they said we're going to go see the pyramids, I was like, how long is that going to take? And, <laughs> no. You know, are camels involved? <laughs> like, what do I have to do? <laughs> they was like right there. <laughs> is there a place, Anne, that you have not yet been that you didn't get there during the, the fly girl days and you haven't been yet that you really want to go? You know, there are a few places. Uh, unfortunately, I've never been to St. Petersburg. And with the oh, political yeah. you know, situation, I'm not sure if I ever will get there. I really love Southeast Asia and I've traveled, you know, after being a flight attendant a lot, but I've never gone to Laos, which is a country that I'm dying to see because it's so special and small and beautiful and different. I I really like those kinds of places. And this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Carrie, thank you so much. I could talk to you all day. This same is here, same here. Anne Hood's new memoir is titled Fly Girl, and she was joining us from Providence, Rhode Island. We're going to close with Me and the Sky. The oh, song, so. my favorite. Thank you. I love that. My parents must have thought they had a crazy kid. Because I was one of those kids who always knew what I wanted. They took me down to the airport to see all the planes depart and watching them fly. Something inside of me was starting. I was eight when I told them that I'd be a pilot. But I was too young and too short, and there were no female captains. And my dad said, be patient. He said, just see what happens. But I took my first lesson, came down from the sky, and told my father I'd fly for the rest of my life. And I got my first job flying for a mortician in a tiny bonanza, just a corpse and me.
But the World War II pilots, they all complained They said girls shouldn't be in the cockpit Hey lady, hey baby, hey Why don't you grab us a drink? And the flight attendants weren't my friends back then And they said, are you better than us? Yeah.